You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. My guest this week, Britton Smith, is a founding member and the president of the Broadway Advocacy Coalition, which unites artists, experts, students, and community leaders to use storytelling and artistry to combat systemic racism. Broadway Advocacy Coalition recently received a special Tony Award for their activism. Britton has appeared on Broadway in Be More Chill, Shuffle Along, After Midnight, and in several off-Broadway shows. He is also a singer-songwriter for the group Britain and the Sting, featuring a mix of funk, gospel, and soul music. I'm so thrilled to have him here today. Britain, welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Thank you, Jana. I, I come with the guest of New York City behind me, so all your listeners can, can feel me and the city as well. I'm so happy to be here, Jana. I love it, and I love the sound effects. Um, so we're actually just meeting for the first time, and I was wondering if we could do a little warm-up exercise with a few rapid-fire questions so that we can get to know you better. <laughs> okay, let's do it, let's do All it. Right. All right, here we go. If you could be an animal, what animal would you be? A panther. A panther. What's your favorite food? A good steak, medium rare. Oh, me too, but medium well. Oof, oof. Um, <laughs> Uh, what is the first thing that you notice about somebody when you meet them? Their eyes and their warmth or lack of warmth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can you tell us two truths and one lie about yourself? Oh, okay. Um, I am a Scorpio. I am a divorcee. I am from California. <laughs> okay, so now I have to try to guess which is the uh -huh, lie. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, that you're from California. Such a lie. <laughs> <laughs> How? What uh, gave that away? What I gave it away? Because I'm from California, I can I can feel a fellow Californian. Like, um, <laughs> That's a lie. Describe yourself in three words. 
authentic, sensitive, brave. Favorite all-time Broadway show? Favorite all-time Broadway show? Um, does it have to be something that I've seen or can it be something that I, I, I wish I had seen? It could be either. Okay. I wouldn't say Sweet Charity. I think that show just, it continues to haunt me with its production, its music, its story, its costumes, the era, the funk of it all. I think it's the best. And so, yeah, and I've never even seen it. And I wow. Just wow. What is the biggest mistake you've ever made? Or like a significant mistake? Mm. Oh man, this is this is not a good warm up. I got <laughs> That's a big ass question. Um what's the biggest mistake I've ever made? Um Or let's modify. Like what's something you regret? Gosh, that's so hard for me because there are things that I thought I regret and then I look back and I'm like, "No, nah, you need to really learn that, man." Like hmm. or like um ah, I, I uh, regret it's so hard for me. Uh, okay, we'll take a pass on that one. Yeah, we'll take a pass on that. Pass on that. Okay. Well, you have so many things to be proud of, but can Man. you name one of the things that you're most proud of and why? Most proud of sticking with my defiance. I was deemed a misbehaved kid for so much of my life. I thought something was wrong with me. I was tested. They're like, this guy has a problem with authority. He can't. He can't listen. And I just always had this vision past the confines of the rules that were placed on me, school and church and home. And I'm so proud that I was able to find room for that defiance and, and channel that um, for the good of all. And so I'm really proud of that. Wow. And the, so that's a perfect segue to start talking about, um, you know, this podcast. And can you talk a little bit about like, where are you from if you're not from California? And ha what tell us about that growing up and, and your defiance and your behavior and your fitting in. Yeah. Uh, you can probably tell that I'm not from California because of my smile. It's a Southern smile. It's a, <laughs> it's a Southern gent warmness uh, and a sternness. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Um, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in San Antonio, Texas. Um, I'm from a single parent home. My mom raised me and my older brother, Brian. My brother, seven years older than me, was deeply into sports and music. I was not into music. I was not into sports, I'm sorry. I was really into music. And uh, that was how we communicated, me and my brother. And beyond that, we just fought and didn't like each other very much. But music was, and has always been such a gateway um, for expression and community for me um there's a big truck passing behind me that's okay like i said love the sound effects yes <laughs> everybody's gonna feel like they're in new york city with us yeah um and uh through music i found my voice i found my a gift i had i love to sing i love to write uh i also found a friend in music i was a very lonely kid and so mm. music was always kind of a, a buddy of mine at a piano writing and then i found theater uh, in high school and then theater brought me to new york i didn't know that i wanted to do theater i knew i wanted to get off my grandmother's couch and i wanted to be away from texas for obvious reasons bless them bless them bless them um but i got to new york i went to pace for musical theater uh where i studied and earned a bfa in musical theater and then shortly after college i started booking really great jobs and learning from a lot of artists of color, a lot of really great um, directors, both white and non-white. And I, I've been very 
blessed to have a really fun, exciting career in theater. And um, during Shuffle Along, I tapped into something very unique um, that channeled my defiance. And uh, during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2016, Amber um, Iman, a castmate, wrote on her Facebook page, there's Broadway for dogs, there's Broadway cares, there's Broadway for all these things. Where, why isn't there a Broadway for Black Lives Mattering? And I never really thought about that either. And I never even wanted a space for that. But um, her disruption created an opening that I was like very eager to participate in. And because of the kind of person that I am, I just don't participate. I often take over mm-hmm. and I'll often, like tell people, we should, we should, we should, we should, we should, we should. And it was the first time that really that that vision of participation, that that vision of what could happen was really tapped into. And five years later, we're, we're here and talking to you. And uh, I'm a really big product of a lot of growth and a lot of failure. I think that's why I um, couldn't really talk about regret because all of it has really built me to who I am. So I don't regret even the nastiest, ugliest, muddy pieces of life that have happened. That's a really good outlook. Well, let's go back five years, though, when you first started Broadway Advocacy Coalition. Like, tell us how it actually came about. Yeah. Uh, um, um, so, so through Amber's um, Facebook message, a bunch of us, we were all in shuffle along, probably like six of us. And um, we decided that we wanted to do something for the Black Lives Matter movement. There was obviously police brutality is so wrong and it's rampant and it's horrible and we see it as an injustice, but I didn't know what to do. I'm not a protester. I can't go in the streets and scream and raise my hand. It's not me. I would cry. I'm too sensitive. But also I was like, well, what can I do? I don't want to sing and dance for Black Lives Matter either. Like, what's my role, right? And so we thought instead of raising money for people who are protesting and advocating, what can we learn about ourselves that allow us to participate in that? So um, I reached out to Janine Tesori. I have no idea why. I said, Janine, a bunch of people of color want to do something on Broadway to participate, but we don't really know what to do. Do you know people in policy or in advocacy? And one of her students or colleagues, Ben Wexler's mom, um, has a clinic at Columbia Law School. And it was literally the universe placing us all together. Her name is Susan Stern. She's been with us for five years now. She's on our board as our vice president. She allowed us to understand law and understand the policies that perpetuate police brutality. And so we found this nugget of collaboration that involves artists with lawyers and people who have been most directly affected by mass incarceration and police brutality. And we found a need to create together. We started with this event. Uh, called Broadway for Black Lives Matter in 2016. And thousands of people came out to participate in learning their role. And it it enabled us to see a hunger that, oh, not just six of us want to find our role. Our whole community wants to find our role. Mm-hmm. Lawyers want to find their role. Lawyers are in school, Columbia Law School, saying, you know, I have all this knowledge and I'm going to be in the arena soon. What's my responsibility? How do I link to art? And so it all created this space that created um, a home for people who want to collaborate around art policy and storytelling. And so 
it's in our blood now to continue to see how stories affect policy and how policy affects stories. And how did the organization pivot during the pandemic and then especially during the social unrest of the last year and George Floyd's murder? Mm, something I'm really proud of is during COVID, for some reason, our organization, not for some reason, <laughs> the universe kept us real busy, during the pandemic, <laughs> right? Um, something that we love to do at BAC is collaborate with organizations that are already doing amazing work in social justice, in in land work that haven't yet used an arts-based practice. And so during COVID, we learned that people who were incarcerated were suffering through horrible conditions, Jen. Jen, like they were, there were people in their cells who had COVID and there wasn't soap or adequate things to treat them. And we know that when people are sent to prison or incarcerated, they're treated really inhumanely. And at a time when people were isolated, not in prison, but isolated, it created an opening in people to be like, yo, I feel horrible confined. Also, imagine being confined and your roommate having it. Some of the people felt that. So imagine those conditions and being away from your family and your family not being able to call you and check up. Like, there were a bunch of things that we were aware of, that this organization was aware of, but that only art beyond data, beyond a New York Times article could mobilize. And so we partnered with um, releasing age, aging people from prison. This is an mm. incredible organization. There are people in prison who are 65 who committed a crime when they were 18. Perhaps they had weed, a weed charge at 18. And they're in prison at 65. What can we do to mobilize this issue, right? So we partnered with 24-Hour Plays because we knew that 24-Hour Plays has a network of incredible playwrights, incredible artists, who can tell the stories of these people incarcerated and their families. And so that was one of my most proud, our most proud partnerships. So we did that and 24 Hour Place has it up on their website, but, but we got to hear from people of how they felt incarcerated um, dealing with COVID. And it allows people at home to think uh, of how wide your suffering can really be. And when George Floyd murder happened, our entire industry um, was asked to look at themselves deeply as well. I think what happened, and I have to say this, um, I think people forget that really what happened before BAC stepped up was a fire. A lot of institutions were being called out, were being challenged. They were saying Black Lives Matter, and then even their staff People who had worked for them were saying, whoa, the public, if Black Lives Matter, then why did X, Y, and Z happen? Whoa, mm -hmm. theater owners, if Black Lives Matter, why did this happen? Whoa, Telsey, if Black, like, they were really calling out. So there was a fire. I mean, people were burning shit down and people didn't mm -hmm. know where to look. BAC saw an opportunity of the fire and said, wow, we're uniquely positioned because of our work at Columbia Law School to bring together people who would not normally come together and have a conversation about the issue and what's possible, right? It's very easy to say, Jenna, no, Jenna, no, Jenna, 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 no. It's harder to say everybody talk and figure out a way to get accountable and not have that happen again, right? right. And so we were able to have a three-day forum called Broadway for Black Lives Matter again that mirrored our first 
program in 2016, but really how do we center the pain that people of color are feeling in our industry? Then how do we allow people non of color to witness and learn from these stories that are being told? And how do these stories affect our next level of decisions? How do our stories that we are hearing affect the way our unions operate? How do our stories that we were hearing affect casting offices to not have two-year free internships anymore, right? Right. We have to look at ourselves and, and say, oh, wow, we've been benefiting in a way that has left out the, the liberation of a lot of people. And super proud that BAC was able to have a space of like, reconciliation and challenge. Um, on this podcast, I've had many guests. And at one point during toward the sort of the end of the lockdown, um, I asked every guest, um, what would you do or what would you want to see to make Broadway a better place? And white people, black people, people of any color, everybody pretty much said the same thing, which is we need to stop the systemic racism. We need to make Broadway more equitable, more, more equality. And, um, Brian Stokes Mitchell was on the podcast and he said something really interesting because we did talk about that moment in time of George Floyd's murder. And he said, you know, everybody was stopped and everybody was home. And when that happened, it wasn't like you could just go out the next day and get bond with your business and do whatever you were doing. You were there and everybody just sat with it and had, was very present with what was happening. And because of that, that became the catalyst, you know, because we were all just in it. Yes. Everybody was in it. Yes. Um, so with Black Lives Matter and with, especially with George Floyd's murder and Broadway Advocacy Coalition was just there at this moment in time when everybody needed you, you know, to show us the way. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. And we know what we needed it as well. I mean, someone asked me today, why do you do this work? you obviously care so much. Why do you care so much? And I think I can say I care so much because I'm affected deeply by it. And I want people to know, I think a lot of people are like, yo, Britain, man, yo, I, 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 like, I like Britain. I feel liked. And so I want to use that liking to push. And I think that there are people who have been near me, who like me, who, who like what we're doing, who like how we work together, who don't realize how I'm moving through racism in a rehearsal space, how I'm moving through racism in an audition room. I think people are just like, oh, he's fine. He's smiling. They don't know what I'm smiling past or smiling through. And that moment of George Floyd's murder and everybody's beginning to see widened people's gaze of things that they were not seeing that were so close to them. It's like, it's, it's like seeing something right next to you that you never saw before. I think that, that shook up a lot of people, some into action, some into fear and stifled them from moving forward. I, it was crazy to, to begin to see the unseen, you know. Explain that feeling to me, to our listeners, but to, like, I really want to understand what was that feeling in that rehearsal room when you're moving through the racism? Can you describe um, it? Yeah, I think um, there's a certain way to behave in a rehearsal space that I've been taught to behave like by white professors at my institution where I learned how to be in the business. 
It's about showing up on time, which is not a black or white thing, be on time. It's about also understanding power and your lack of power in a rehearsal room. It's about not being too loud. It's about bringing your full self, but not too much of your full self, if your full self isn't white. And so what does that mean, right? Like, I'm a professor at Columbia Law School. I am, I am smart. I know that I am smart. And that has been a realization of like, yo, you're not just a class clown. You're actually a bright individual. And there's a, there's a loudness to my blackness. There's a amen that I do as an affirmation. I think that blackness is very interactive. But in a rehearsal room, that's all asked to kind of be less, that that's asked to be pulled back, to participate in a practice that is inherently at the Broadway space, a white space. And so you're asked to lead that out to participate in this, or you're disruptive, or you're unprofessional, or you don't really get it, or you're not lucky, or you don't see how lucky you are to be here. Mm -hmm. But like, um, even to what you wear, really, you know, um, there are some things that are comfortable to me that I don't want to wear to work because they're going to think it's unprofessional. So let me wear this instead, you know. Um, another thing I think is um, the way we're taught music. I was taught music through the church and I can pick up and learn. And I know that's completely about blackness, but it's definitely about culture right and like there are some cultures who just receive music in a certain way and we can interpret and it 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 belongs to us and therefore we don't have to be taught in a certain way but broadway you're going to get a binder you're going to have these hours of music and it's it's structured in a way as if there's only one way of doing it and the so white, the great white way the great white way and and if you try to disrupt that or ask for another thing it makes you seem like you're not ready so you want to be white and ready or you don't or, or they'll say ah don't hire him next time he he doesn't get that there's a way we're doing it and so bac and is challenging yo what's the way we're doing it and why why is that the way and who named it the way you know um yeah and i'm i'm and that's my experience as a black queer man think about a black woman that's another experience think about a trans woman that's another mm. experience like there are white male dominant ways of working in the theater industry that like we're really trying to challenge on all of those levels all of, for all. Well, I know that, um, you know, I'm not the only one to say this obviously, but you know, the, the power and like who gets to decide which stories are going to be told on Broadway is so critical. And, you know, up to now it's been more traditionally white, you know, middle-aged men are just making those decisions. So I think that, um, you know, creating this pipeline of people coming in with diverse, you know, diverse backgrounds to tell stories is really important. I know that Broadway Advocacy Coalition has a number of scholarships and you do, I think, fellowships as well as other programs. And I wondered if you could describe some of that for us, because I feel like that's such a key for the future of, you know, the theater and in, um, in exactly that, that piece of like who who gets to actually tell the stories? Who gets the power to say, we're going to do that and not that? And, and just make sure that all of the roles on Broadway, whether you're on stage or off stage, can be filled you know, by people who represent what this country really is, right? Yes. Thank you. for That's, a, that's good, Jen. You know, I want to give space also to um, 
all of the organizations that have come up since George Floyd's murder, BTC, BTU, Broadway for Racial Justice, BOLD has been around for years. There's so many organizations doing a lot of great work to mobilize the advancement of Black creatives, Black stories, Black art, Black liberation in the theater space. Um, and when you talk about like numbers of like, how do we begin to have more Black producers, Black storytellers, Black, uh, black creatives, I'll say more positioned than us, um, Black uh, theater coalition with T. Oliver Reed and Warren Adams, they are really about the numbers of people. They are strategically placing more people of color in these spaces. BAC's role is once these people are in your space, how are they being treated? How are they able to bring their full selves? Work with us so that when people are brought into your space, you're not just bringing them into the space because they're black. You know what it feels like you know what benefits you have by hiring somebody in black. And they feel like they're not just a number. They feel welcomed. Let's have a workshop about welcoming. Like we're about mm -hmm. creating a space where we can all identify the world we want to be in, but with the people that are there, you know, we do this with several shows on Broadway, but our artivism fellowship is about tapping into our own inherent nature to be change agents through our artistry. So um, last year, we welcomed 10 um, black women into our BAC arms for six months. And we asked them to bring their best craft, bring your songwriting, bring your writing. And we're gonna bring in lawyers and advocates, judges, and people linked to mass incarceration to help inform your mind about what's keeping the world from the vision you see. And how do you, what happens when you get to collaborate with a student at Columbia Law School about a specific issue about housing in New York that you care about? What happens when you get to dig into the policies that are keeping you from what you want? And then how does your art then from there become more impactful? So the Artivism Fellowship is about using art and policy and building people's capacity to see themselves as change agents through their craft. And so this year, we get to welcome 10 um, just individuals at large. We're, we're, because of the Tony, we're actually able to offer them more money this year, which is fantastic. We're able to do it with more time. We're able to pay our staff more. But it's about creating an incubator of time and space to, to really help people who are so close, who just need more uh, support and a deeper level of understanding of policy. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we're back. We had a little technical snafu. So this is actually part two of Britton Smith and the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Um, when we were last talking, uh, I was asking you about the special Tony Award that um, Broadway Advocacy Coalition received. And I really want to know, like, what did that award mean for your organization? Um, what did it mean for you? Um, and what does it mean in terms of Broadway moving forward with issues of racism? Wow, that's a heavy question. And I love we're starting part two. Just it's, right a multiple, it's multiple questions yeah, in one. And yeah. if, I, if I miss a part of it, you'll, you'll bring me back to ground. Um, I will. Actually, you know what? Let's start with this. Where were you? And how were you informed that Broadway Advocacy, Advocacy Coalition was going to get this special Tony? <laughs> did you get a phone call? Did you get an email? How'd it go down? Yeah. Um, I got a text message, actually, from a 917 number saying, Britton, I need to talk to you. And I was like, who the hell is this? And it was Charlotte St. Martin. Uh, Charlotte is uh, uh, the president of the Broadway League. And uh, she sent me a, a text message. And I was like, that's so strange. I've been emailing this woman for a, a minute and I wonder what this is. And I was on another call and she said, can you talk in like 15 minutes? And I was like, I can't talk in 15. And she said, this is very urgent. Me and Heather need to talk to you. Heather Hitchens is the president of the American Theater Wing. Theater. There we go. Um, and so I was like, what is this? And uh, I got on the Zoom call after my last call of the day and they, they said, um, we just want you to know um, the work that PAC has done has really started a much needed conversation in our work and really in the entire industry. And we want to let you know that um, we're giving PAC a special Tony Award for its work to really uh, symbolize how important this work is. And and then it was like, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, ah, what did she just say? <laughs> it took a moment to um, fully digest. And I think I have a moment, gosh, as in my moment of defiance and my moment of uh, challenge, I also do not like to appear as or seem as like a lucky black kid. And so I didn't want to cry in front of these two white ladies because I was like, I don't want them to feel like they're changing my life or some shit. And so I tried to hold together and just be grateful and then like let them know like that's very exciting. But then it became a moment where I moved past however they saw me really receive this information and I just kind of lost it in full gratitude and was able to really feel what this was going to start to enable Right. And, you know, BAC has been an organization for the last five years that sometimes it's all volunteer. Sometimes it's you get 20 bucks an hour. Sometimes it's, well, I'm the president, so I'm not going to get paid, but I'm going to make sure we at least have 20 grand in our bank account. Right. And we've been doing so much incredible work on a shoestring. And so my first thought was, oh, my God, people are people with money are going to learn about us. And like mm. and people in the industry with money are going to 
see their need for us and help sustain our work. And um, it was just an overwhelming sense of joy and emotion. And, you know, it's a, it's a Tony award. Like, it's not mm-hmm. like a, a like certificate of like job well done. It's, mm-hmm. a, and so then I asked her, I said, yo, who's, who's gonna, are we all gonna get to go? And at that time, they only gave us two tickets, but I can tell everybody here that um, on the day of the Tonys, like, we had like 12 tickets and there were like a, a, a good amount of our founders and our staff were there with us. And that was really exciting to celebrate with them. And they got to see me freak out on stage and, and have that outer body experience that I <laughs> can even barely even talk about. It's crazy. Well, how did you let your staff and your other, um, you know, colleagues know about the special Tony? Did you like call a Zoom together, or did you like yeah. email everybody, or what did yeah. you do? Um, so Rob Nan is is our executive director, and uh, he's also my work boyfriend. And so me mm. and Rob talk every day. So Rob knows everything I know. He knows everything I know. But sometimes you have to wait to tell everybody until it feels like the right time because you know things happen or we wanted to give everybody all the details at once you know because there's a lot of questions that come with that we're, we're winning a tony well is there a speech is there who's going we didn't know anything and this mm-hmm. year because of covid jan a lot of things were different i heard than most tony awards and so yeah i can tell you firsthand they certainly were yeah they didn't give us a lot of information and not because they didn't want to they didn't even have they didn't know mm-hmm. where it was going to be. They didn't know mm-hmm. so much. So uh, we wanted to wait until we had details. And then I found out <laughs> uh, there was a press release that was going to go out that David mm-hmm. Byrne and Utopia, uh, Freestyle Up Supreme and PAC, mm-hmm. and see the special Tony honors this year. Um, and it was going out on Thursday. We found out on Wednesday. And on Wednesday night, I was like, I do not want my staff to find out in a press release. So I called everybody personally and was like, hey, uh, I can't talk long because I got to call everybody on our team. And But um, you're winning a Tony and it's going to be announced tomorrow. And that was <laughs> so cool. It was really beautiful. You know, no one expects to win an award for this type of work. And there's so much unseen labor and like really bloodshed and dreams and unrest at night and and shooting up in the morning with a new idea that like, no one could ever give an award fully to account for. So it was really cool to share that moment with everybody personally, actually. And then we had a Zoom call and talked about it all. And then, and you know, like more details came and it was great. Really great. And talk a little bit about the performance on the Tonys. Oh, my goodness. Uh, um, so Daniel Watts is a friend of mine. He's a spoken word artist and an incredible Tony Award nominated artist uh, for his work in Tina. And uh, he he wrote a piece about silence and how silence, like in the song, creates a pause. And the space between that pause can enable breath, can enable disruption, can enable a jerk in the groove that we're all used to. Um, and it was a beautiful um, metaphor of um, the pause that we were in when we were paused because of COVID and the the things that happened in our refrain, in our pause. And um, uh, it was very exciting to see a bunch of friends 
also perform and um, just share their hopes and their dreams through their craft. I mean, um, something about the performance also, you know, BAC has a very unique way of performing when we perform that comes from our methodology, right? From our from our work at Columbia Law School through our way of making sure all the right people are in the room to create. And so in talking with Shelly and, and Sergio, um, the um, directors and choreographers of the show, we were really like, yo, please make sure that like these people are included in this piece. Please make sure that um, the piece reflects. And so actually watching it, having not been in any rehearsals or anything, mm -hmm. I can be a little bit of a control freak, uh, but uh, for good cause, for good cause, it was overwhelming. It was really overwhelming. And I'm glad it's online that we can all see again because something about that night just kind of felt like a, a blur of joy and a blur of awe. So I was able to go back and watch and really remember how special that piece was. And so everyone go go on YouTube right now and check it out. It's so good. Yeah. And you know what? That's that's true. Like I actually saw a lot of the rehearsal tapes and stuff. Um, so as it was being developed, it was such a strong and moving piece. And then sitting there in the audience, you're right. It was it was a kind of a blur at the moment because there was just everybody's there in masks, and it was like the first time people were gathered together in such mm -hmm. a you know big environment. And um, so I did the same thing. Like I went back um, when I got home, and I like watched clips of it, and it's just it's so powerful, mm. and it's so beautiful. And you're right, using that artistry um, to tell the story is it's just it 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 hits you in a way that. Mm. that is very different and very, very, goes all the way inside. Yeah, and I think that, you know, people, it's strange because as we're looking to create a new Broadway, a new way of working, a new space of an inclusion, it, it's going to allow and give permission to, whether you, actually, I don't even want to say permission, it's just going to be a new level of using artistry as a weapon for change, more so and so more so than usual when we have space and when we have a platform. And so I wonder if the Tonys got backlash from people around the country who don't want to hear things like that, who just want to watch the Tonys and, and see the beautiful song and just remember the beautiful theater. Like, you know, there are people around the country who watch the Tonys who mm -hmm. I imagine don't share the same views as you, me and Daniel. And they had to watch a lot of the Tonys and a lot of people accept awards and say a lot of truthful, challenging things, you know? I know that people have said things like, why can't people just accept their Oscar and get off stage? Like, why are they mm -hmm. having to talk about like women's rights and, and sexual abuse? Like, just, you know, like there are people who are upset by change. There are people who are upset by watching something that they're expecting to just have their popcorn. Nobody wants to be Everybody doesn't want to be challenged in the same mm -hmm. way that we're asking ourselves to challenge ourselves and challenge our industry. So I wonder uh, how the Tonys was received this year with that level of voice for coming forward when we come back to Broadway. You know, a lot of people yeah. accepted awards and made sure that their vision for the wor world was said. You know, Kenny Leon, mm -hmm. um, uh, Sonia Taye. Um, uh, 
Oh my God. So many people just really make sure. Yeah, no, the speeches were really incredible. And you're right. You know, I can tell you, I didn't see anything in my social media feed, but then I probably have people who are like-minded in my social media feed Thanks. and the reviews for the Tonys were really good. Oh, so, good, good, good. Um, so hopefully it's all good, but that's interesting what you said before about how the award, what it means for BAC in terms of funding. And then that funding is going to allow you to do more of your mission. I'm a big advocate for reminding people that when they give to BAC, they're giving to a black led organization of people who are literally scarred and harmed by the work, choosing to do the work beyond that and heal themselves and heal others and heal systems that have been broken and have affected them. It, it's, it blows my mind that like, um, it's like a doctor who is still hurt helping other people. Um, and I'm like, wow, that's, um, so we're giving to that and to the work and to the industry that needs us. And so thank you. Well, you know, it makes me think about um, you personally and how did you get into social activism and philanthropy? Um, you know, obviously you are giving so much of yourself, of your time, but also, as you said, you're, you're exposing yourself mm. and it hurts. Um, but what motivated, what motivated you? So you talked about growing up in Texas and mm -hmm. obviously that was a very different environment. Um, but did you see you know, philanthropy being modeled, for example, you mentioned at your church, mm. or like, how did you, how did you take those bold steps to be a philanthropist, to be a social activist? Wow. Not everybody, a lot of people think that, you know, the thoughts, but then they don't follow through on the action. Mm -hmm. You took action. What motivated you or how did you do that? Um, I would say that being black and queer in Texas forced it's motivation me enough to, huh, Honey, it forced me very early on to have to advocate for myself, just to be like, yo, am I good? Wow, mm -hmm. am I worthy? Ooh, the first group or the first thing I had to fight for was my own self-value. And because so many things around me, even my church, even my family, even my community were telling me through jokes through through scripture through so many things that like you are wrong you are wrong you are wrong you are wrong and so i always felt like i don't think i'm wrong and so i had to really go inward and find something and um hold on to that belief and break free by holding on to that um knowing that like there's another world. There's got to be another world. There's got to be another set of people. There's another set of beliefs. There's another identity within myself. Like, and so I, I think the first thing I had to advocate for and made me a social change advocate was um, learning to really fight for the love of myself. And then that built a callus and that built, an, that built a strength to look at other people who are similar in their fight against oppression and, and you whether that's either in your sexuality and your gender and it, it just i'm i think it made me suited for this i didn't realize that it was doing that but it kind of molded me having to stick up for myself so much and having to talk to myself and coach myself so much and um 
there have been a lot of people in my journey growing up who have really saw me fighting for myself and poured into me and said, yo, I love you. Like, yo, you're good. And those types of people, um, I have a song called, um, I don't want to go back to sleep. A really horrible thing happened. One of my closest friends died in high school and it really took a lot out of me. And um, my boyfriend's mom at the time was just so able to like understand what I was feeling and her love for me really like birthed me back to being okay. And something about her love inspired me and taught me that like, wow, love really does shift a lot. And so a lot of what I'm doing even in the industry um, and in my music is reminding people of not just the world I want, but like the love that I know is, is possible. And I want us to get as close to that love as possible. And that could be God love, that could be self love, that could be global love, that can be community love. But I think it's all about dragging myself and others and systems closer to the love I know that Johari poured into me. And it, it just like opened up a new level of health and, 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 and possibility for me. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the whole idea of being on an airplane and, you know, when the oxygen masks drop, you have to put yours on first and then you can help other people. So that idea of self-love and then being able to be loved and show love to others, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's pivot here and and let's get a little lighter for a second. Um, You're also a songwriter and you're the front man for a um, a group. Tell me about Britain and the Sting. You guys have a new single. Yes. And I want to hear about the music and what you guys hope to accomplish. And Our, our go listen to Holding On. It's our new single. Um, uh, my band is called Britain and the Sting. Our mission is to sting as many people with a contagious permission of authenticity and like radical love and like across differences across barriers we just want to sting as many people with this love that we know we get from our music and um music has always been that gift for me and a gateway into the world i want to live in right as i spent a lot of time alone as a kid and like i always had music to like keep me company and like write songs and like it just kind of was medicine for me and um in a literal way like sometimes when I am uh deeply saddened I sing to myself to soothe myself like music really is like a therapeutic thing for me and so I've always written songs I have a chunk of songs forever and and people have been like Britain you need to share your music you need to share your music and one day I was in a cab and um, I had been praying about like, yo, God, I have all this music. I really want, how do I share it? I really want to share it. I really want to share it. What should I do? And I was in this cab. And this story is crazy, Jan. Oh, man. In this cab, um, and this driver um, is driving as a cab driver does. And he was kind of dozing off a little bit. And I said, hey, 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 man, uh, don't uh, fall asleep at the wheel. I'm going to be famous one day. And he said, <laughs> Yeah, aren't we all? 
And I started <laughs> laughing at him. I was like, oh, okay, that's funny. And um, he's driving, driving, driving. And uh, he says, can I see your palm? I said, okay. <laughs> she stops at a light. I hand him my hand. And he looks at it. I'm like, this is so weird, but like, whatever. It's like, <laughs> going home. It's not too crazy on the streets. And he says, okay, you've been through a lot in your life. It's built you to who you are. And you're going to have everything you want. You are going to have everything you want. To make sure there's someone around you to keep you grounded because you need protection. You're going to need a lot of protection. Make sure there are people around you who are going to protect you. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so sweet. Thank you so much. Great. <laughs> I was like, great. Oh, that's so great. I, and then I said, yo, you're really gifted. I appreciate that. And he said, what? You think I'm some rec- you think I'm some regular taxi driver? And the car went, I felt like the whole cab went like kind of cold. And I started to like feel <laughs> literally <laughs> even just talking about it. I started to like feel like spirit was upon me and I got quiet and I allowed <laughs> like the coolness of the car to kind of settle and he said he didn't ask me do you make music he didn't ask me what do I do he didn't say are you even an artist this man knows nothing about me I mm-hmm. other than my hand and what he told me and he said do you have a band I said, no, tears, 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 tears in mm. my eyes. And he said, you need a band. And I began to weep in this man's car. And I said, thank you so much. He said, you're welcome. I began to cry. I said, what is your name? He said, my name is Aslam. And I don't remember what Aslam meant. I remember running upstairs and like crying to my husband and like, weeping and like being like, oh my God, this just happened. I'm going to start a band. And I Googled what Aslam meant. And I think it meant like a personality, a leader, a gatherer. It was something like, I was like, whoa. And I started a band. And ever since I called my best friend who's in the band, I called this person who's in the band. And I just gathered a group of people who I knew had a similar mission of reshaping where holiness is happening, where religion and beyond religion how do we access the spirit at a bar with a drink in our hand how do we gather and commune and dance together and like really how do we use music as a gateway into creating spaces of radical love and liberation and every time we gather and have a show it's an example of like shock and awe in the same way i felt in that taxi ride like this man spoke life into <laughs> that ride and I want the medallion number for that taxi driver. <laughs> Jen, it's crazy. Wow. It's it's wild and it's we I'm just it's the most um it's the most me I've ever been in my life and it teaches me so much about what I am and what I want and how to gain that through my most authentic self. Like there are songs that are really just for me that others also like. I have a song called, You Don't Have to Lie to Kick It because a lot of times I I shift myself to be something else to gain what I want. And so I wrote a song to myself and other people are like, yo, 
when I go to auditions, like if I'm in an elevator with people who I think are judging me, I hum to myself, you don't have to lie to kick it, baby, you can be yourself. And I'm like, yo, the same way I soothe myself through music, other people are using it as a pill and it just, it just blows my mind and I just want to be a gay me- mega pastor one day with my music. Okay, so I want to go get that pill of your music and soothe myself. Um, Also, I love that you are so open. I mean, a lot of people would be sitting in that taxi and going, I'm not going to give you my hand or, you know, (laughs) okay, fine. And then just go, this guy's a wackadoodle. But no, I mean, you allow yourself to be open. Mm. And I think that's also a really big piece of being a philanthropist. You know, Mm. it's about being open to other humans, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's that says a lot about who you are. Um, you know, I'll tell you this, you know, I feel like as growing up in the church, my Christian Southern religion, traditional background told me that the word of God comes from the Bible. And I'm like, actually, I believe the word of God comes through Jen, you can say something right now that is a word of from God that I need to hear. I don't believe that it only comes from a book that was written by God who God knows who, God knows when. You know, <laughs> sometimes the word that you need to hear comes from mm. a lady on the train sitting next to you. And if you're not open to that word, you just closed off something that was uniquely yours. And so, yes, protect yourself. Yes, be careful. Don't talk to every stranger. But I've been given a word of God from strangers, even from people I'm trying to challenge sometimes. In this work, I've been asked to talk to some of the most powerful people in our industry and ask them to look at themselves and see what harm they may have caused that they weren't aware of or didn't consider as harmful enough. And there have been moments when I'm sitting across from, let's just call this person, person X, and they say something that I'm like, wow, that was a word. I needed to hear that. I'm shifted by your word. So I think the opportunity to be shifted is what I'm so curious about. I want to be shifted. I want to be redirected. I want to be brought higher. So if there's an opportunity to have that, sign me up. Taxi driver and all. Yeah, me too. Speaking of being shifted, I want to be shifted. And I want to know, no, seriously, I want to know, like, what advice can you give me and the others who are listening with regards to getting involved, to being an ally, to making this world a better place, that's free of racism, that's full of equity and full of equality. Like what what can we do? Like if we're gonna take away something from this podcast conversation. Well, I'll say wanting to be shifted is like the, I think is 80% of it. You know, it's the desire because that desire enables you you can't want to be shifted and close yourself off. You know, you have to be willing to have hard conversations if you want to be shifted. You have to be willing to read things you weren't normally going to read if you want to be shifted. You have to be in community with people who are going to shift you. You know, <laughs> like um, there are certain people, certain spaces, certain pieces of music, there are even certain physical practices that will open you up and if, if you want that. And um, I think being honest about how much do you wanna be shifted is very key. So I, I think asking yourselves those questions of 
what do I want? And the next piece of the 20% after that 80 of, of desire and, and, and like willingness to participate is identifying how you uniquely can participate. Like I can't copy someone else's role in this work. I have a unique role in this work and it comes out in my music. It comes out in BAC. It even comes out in the grocery store. Like what is Britain's unique role? Britain is a gatherer. Britain is a weaver. I can make connections. Britain is a storyteller. I'm going to tell you a story that's going to allow you to be on my team. Like there are certain things that I possess that I'm like, ooh, those are good for the land. Wow. What are the skills that you have, listeners, that are uniquely placed in you that needs to be activated for the good? And some people are like, oh, I just have a lot of money. And like, if that's what you have, use that. Please, but I promise you, beyond what you can give, there's something unique in you. And we have this um, ecosystem at BAC that um, gives you a map of all the different things that you can be for the work. You can be a disruptor. You can be a healer. You can be a storyteller. You can be a weaver. Um, you can be a healer. There's like several more, right? But I think understanding who you are what you possess uniquely, and then activating that into um, what you see is necessary to catch up to the world you see that we can get to is key. And also allowing yourself to have a vision of the world and allowing your vision to be loved, right? I think people are afraid to admit um, they see a world where blank because we're not there yet. But naming, man, I see a world where same-sex marriage is legal. Was a vision somebody had in the 20s, for sure. It didn't become real until <laughs> my lifetime. But you know, that was someone's vision before it was even someone's voice. So what are we visualizing now that our children, that our grandchildren, that their children can catch up to in executing for us but we have to still vision what are we visioning what do we want the world to see that we can begin to plant seeds in so i say one find that willingness and really be honest about that two find your unique role in that willingness to participate uniquely not copying someone else's role in the change work and then three vision even if it's just in your journal even if it's just in meditation what kind of world do you want? What kind of world do you see? And then I think once you have that third thing, that, that willingness and that role identification will make you want to <laughs> pull the world to catch up to your vision. Like I, I, and it's, it's, it's an invigorating, it's, it makes you wake up in the morning and want to talk to someone like Jan at 10 a.m. about the world. Like it's exciting and it, it fuels you. It really does. And so there's a lot of benefits to those three things. And um, yeah, I hope that was helpful. That's what I'm doing, at least. Yo, Britain, you are good. <laughs> and I feel like I have just heard the word or words <laughs> yeah. of God in my heart, too. Let's so go. 
Thank you so much for being on this podcast today um, and yesterday. Um, this has just been an incredible conversation. I don't want it to stop. Mm -hmm. I want us to keep talking and um, and I want to get involved and help you and help myself and help the world. Um, so with that, um, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, editor, and friend, Jim Lochner. And thank you to everyone at BPN, including Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Kimberly Garris. I'd also like to thank Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency and Eric Becker from Broderick Street Music. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit vpn.fm slash Broadway Gives Back. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.